Are you truly involved in the developer communities you work in and sell to? Are you seeing the value in the events that you are a part of? DevRelate.io can help. Developer and community relations is a service. We speak developer. Learn more at DevRelate.io or email us at info at DevRelate.io. Welcome to episode 120 of the Pragmatic Podcast. I am Avdi Grimm, and with me today is Janelle Klein. Um, I think it's greater than code, but thank you, Avdi, anyway. And I'm here with my good friend, Jessica Kerr. Maybe it's both, because today our guest is Andy Hunt. Andy is one of two authors of the book Pragmatic Programmer and one of 17 authors of the Agile Manifesto. He co-founded the Pragmatic Bookshelf, and since then he's written a whole bunch of other books, probably with lots of other authors, but now he's even writing science fiction. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. In case you didn't know, we are always going to ask you this one question. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Ultimately, I think I have a knack for explaining the blindingly obvious things to people that you know, we sort of walk around and don't see for whatever reason. And so out of necessity, it's like, hey, look, if you think of this this way or look at it this way, wow, hey, that's better and makes the world a better place. That's actually really hard because, oh, the blinding obvious things, those are those like unknown knowns. <laughs> right. <laughs> to quote Rumsfeld. Well, the, the problem is, you know, we all have a tendency to sort of go through life on autopilot, you know, sort, sort of with blinders on, just kind of doing our thing. And you don't always notice when things have crept up on you or, or something's gone bad. You know, the project's gone south or, you know, there's a, a problem in your, your house or your life or, or whatever, because the change creeps up on us slowly. Back in the original Pragmatic Programmer book, we had the example of boiling the frog. All right. The boiled frog thing. You know, legend has it, and, and we're careful to say back then, you know, we never have tried this. But if you put a frog in a cold pan of water and slowly turn the heat up, it doesn't notice uh, and it gets cooked. If you try to throw it in boiling water, it'll jump out because obviously, as a species, we're like that in a lot of ways. Things just sort of creep up on us and it's a slow change and you don't really notice. So, you know, a lot of times, whether it's it's something in software development or engineering or whatnot, you know, I'll notice that, the, hey, here's this kind of consistent problem. Here's this endemic problem. We know better with air quotes around the no, but, you know, we still kind of fall for the same old traps over and over again. So, so back in the day, which would have been the late 90s, Dave Thomas and I were out doing consulting together. And we noticed that a bunch of our clients, all of our clients, really – had the same problems. We'd leave one client and go to the next. It's like, wow, it's like deja vu all over again. Um, you know, they're doing the same things wrong. So we got it in our head that we should just write a little white paper because we found ourselves telling the same little stories, explaining the same little, you know, this is how the world actually works to folks. And we thought, well, we just write that down, make, make a little white paper out of it. Well, Unlike every software project ever, it grew in scope beyond what we uh, initially had figured. And that became the Pragmatic Programmer book, which oh. to our shock and surprise, right, we'd never written a book before. We had no idea you know, how this worked or what sort of tone to present or even what topics to pick. We both took a year off, if not a little bit more, from working and just worked on the book. Wow. So that was probably at least two and a half, maybe even three man years full time uh, working on the book, trying to figure out exactly that. How do you explain the blindingly obvious in ways that people will viscerally understand and accept and able to use? So things like the, the boiled frog metaphor, uh, stone soup, talking to the rubber duck, the dry principle. You know, We came up with all these things to try to get folks in a better place developing software. Uh, and it's, I still do that. I'm working with some um, some other guys currently on the um, the grows method, trying to reintroduce the concept of continuous learning as a first class part of a method. That's grows in all caps, eh? It is in all caps for no good reason except it kind of look cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Letters—they're growing. 
They're growing. They're getting bigger. Uh, and one of the things we, we do there uh, in workshops for folks who don't understand iterative and incremental development is have them play Battleship. But it's the variation where you have to take all your shots up front. Here's all your pegs. Just shoot. Go. And of course, they don't, they don't hit a they don't hit a damn thing. But then, then you explain why, and you play it the regular way with feedback, where you make a shot, and then oh, I got a hit. I'm going to adjust my strategy now because I know I'm near something. And so that's a very uh, hands-on, tactile, visceral way to explain that sort of feedback loop, where you can adjust your aim and you know get a better result. You can sit here and spout off abstractions about, you know, uh, lean and that and, and uh, incremental and iterative and, and scrum iterations and whatnot. And, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. We do that. They don't. They really don't. You explain it with a game or a, an analogy or something like that. They're like, oh, that's what you mean. I understand that now. And it's funny just how the, the analogy or the words can make a difference. Pragmatic Programmer came out in 2000, by the way. So I'll let, let you do the math. That was it was a while back. And one of the things that we talked about there was what had been known as a, a walking skeleton style of development or a, a thin thread where you develop some feature, log on or whatever, but it goes all the way through the application from the, the screen all the way to the database through whatever middleware, all the parts. It's hello world the entire way. So it's it's skeletal. You know, there's nothing real to it, but you at least have a stub that goes through all the parts and then you grow that. And the analogy that we used was, well, it's like a tracer bullet in the old war movies where you're getting real-time feedback on what you're firing at. So if the target moves, it's no big deal. You can just adjust your aim, and there you go. Whereas if you've got a more ponderous plan-based approach, it's like shooting one of those big uh, howitzers where you need a firing computer and you're measuring the wind speed and direction and you're going through all this nonsense. And by the time you've done all that, if the target's moved, you know, you're out of luck. So, you know, again, it's a it's a kind of a simple explanation, but I've said this to to uh, executives and CEOs and stuff. And they're like, oh, I never understood this whole incremental and iterative. I get it now. I understand. I don't know what the hell that crap is, but I know what a tracer bullet is. And I understand what you mean by that. And suddenly they were enlightened. And the skeleton bit is that like it's not doing anything, but the neck bones connected to the neck bone. Exactly. Connected to the backbone. Exactly. So you've got all the parts. So then it's it's a much easier way to go in and flesh out those little hello world level one line stubs and start to introduce functionality because now you're just building on something that's sort of already there. You're not staring at a blank canvas, you know, to use the art metaphor. You're not trying to invent it out of nowhere and figure out where your ends have to hook up. You know, you've kind of already got at least a first level approximation of that. And then it's much easier to grow it you know, from that starting point. So, yeah, I mean, this was something we, you know, we've been advocating now for some decades because it works. We keep trying to get back to this ideal of iterative development and continuous learning. From my understanding, even the paper that's usually cited as describing the waterfall model back in 1970 was saying, this is bad. We need to be more iterative and we need to be yeah. more like spir spiraling. Why do you think we keep coming back to the same mistake? Um, a lot of reasons. One of the larger problems, I think, is that the folks who uh, happen to own uh, a company or manage a company where software development wasn't what they were about initially, it's a foreign language to them. It's a very foreign concept. So they try to you know, understand it in the, the sort of popular metaphors you'd see about, well, it's like building construction. You've got architects and they build it and then the programs come in and build it and everyone moves in and happily ever after and and of course, that's false. It doesn't work that way. But you're going up against, you know, ingrained management and organizational and corporate structures and organizational theory that dates back to the 19th century. You know, a lot of stuff that we do in, quote, corporate America does its thing because that was needed for the trains in, you know, the 1900s or, or, or whatever. You know, everything goes back to something really old and not applicable anymore. But old habits die hard. And unless you have a really compelling reason to change, you're not going to. And even if you do have a compelling reason to change, it's hard. You know, this is the way it's, quote, always been done. This is what you learned uh, at business school. This is the way the accounting and tax structure is set up or how you fund R&D dollars or whatever. I'm not an accountant, but, you know, there's a lot of real world uh, inertia 
in these areas that you can't just change on a dime, uh, even though you should and, and you need to. So the external systems that we exist within are not set up for iterative software development. Yeah, and if, if I could actually you know, use the word little a, agile, they're not agile. Um, in fact, there's a lot of things in corporate America that are very much uh, the exact opposite of agile. You know, you want to, you have to, you need a, a annual budget. You know, you have to give me your annual budget. Okay, well, that's not very agile, is it? Because I don't know what's going to be happening in here a year from now. You know, try estimates. Estimates is a wonderful topic, right? I even hate the topic, even just, even just discussing it. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, we want to know, you know, but down you to brought it up. I did. I did. You know, <laughs> want to know down to, you know, six minute in- increments, you know, how much staff you need and what you're going to be doing, uh, you know, six months from now, a year from now. Make me I, up a no. story. Yeah, exactly. But, and it goes back to the, the underlying problem. And the answer to your question is cognitive biases. So we have a hardwired need for closure where our brain says, I don't care if you give me the wrong answer. I need an answer. I've got this little mental spreadsheet in my head, and I need to know that this project's going to take however long. Give me an answer. Fine. Eight months. I have no idea. I just made that up. I have absolutely no idea. But you go away happy because I've got a number. It's totally fantasy you know there, there's no rationale behind that whatsoever but damn it it's a number and it goes in the slot and everybody's happy until of course eight months goes by and you realize yeah no this is going to take a bit longer because yeah i remember projects you know where they would do that process up front they'd allocate the time and the budget and then they would allocate a whole bunch of charge codes for different phases of the development and basically like whatever you are actually doing there would just be like an email that went out at the beginning of the week that's like we've 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 used up this charge code so we're burning the next charge code now and it was really just like a, a list of codes to go down like which one are we burning this week yeah it's absolute nonsense i mean there there's no product value to be derived from that there's no shareholder value it's waste in, in lean terms right it's an absolute waste but some regulation some bylaw some accounting procedures, something somewhere requires that. And so there you are. Oh, 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 oh. Can, can, can I bring this around to my favorite quote of the week? Absolutely. <laughs> my favorite quote of the week, week is from Jean Baudrillard, a French philosopher. And he said, he said that the excessive fruitless search for total knowledge leads almost inevitably to a kind of delusion. Or at least his Wikipedia page said that that's his philosophy. So Good enough, good enough. But the point is, if you're looking for answers, you will find answers. They'll be wrong, and what you'll get is delusion. But if what you really need is a complete picture of how the world works, oh, you'll construct one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's that's part of the problem, right? So one of the hardest things about doing a, a, a very effective, agile, incremental, and iterative style company is you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. And that's really hard. You know, from a psychological perspective, that's hard. We're not built that way. We want certainty. We want to know that this process works. You know, I just paid a bazillion dollars to get whatever certified and and all these these consultants in in this process. And, you know, as a business owner, I want my software development process to be a Play-Doh machine where you throw the, the balls of dough in at the end and you turn the crank and out comes this beautiful extruded shape. You know, that's what I want. Well, sure, that's nice. I'd like to know the winning lottery numbers tomorrow, too. But that ain't going to happen. You know, it doesn't work that way. It is a process of growth, of exploration. Uh, A lot of the properties that we want to take advantage of are emergent from the system, uh, from chaos theory. You can't, you know, go in and say, well, let's nail this down. Let's let's productize this. Let's oh, let's scale it. That's even better. Let's scale this. Uh, We have this one wonderful working sort of SEAL team uh, in our company that's doing great. Uh, we have to we have to scale that out. We have we, you know we got ten thousand people. We have to scale that out to everybody. Yeah, doesn't work that way. Yeah, copy the questions, not the answers. Yes, exactly right. So, Andy, you talked about this inertia and why it's difficult to change, but it also seems like there's a lack of templates or alternatives for how to do things differently. And, you know, we have these constraints of things that we want to know. We want to be able to predict the future and write things down. But how can we actually go about doing things differently? What suggestions do you have for that? Don't try to predict the future and don't try and write everything down. (laughs) 
I mean, you know, it's a flip answer, but yeah, you know, basically that. Again, as a species, it's nothing personal, but we suck at prediction. You know, we're terrible at it. We don't know that. You know, there's a little bit of that Dunning-Kruger thing going on there. Um, we, we think we're really good that we can say, oh, I, I know what's going to be happening six months from now, a year from now, whatever. And we can't. You know, we got kind of, I don't know if you remember, we got kind of blindsided when Y2K came up. And that was pretty obvious that that was coming. I mean, that was just a bit of math. We knew when Y2K was coming and all the, uh, all the code was going to break. And that kind of took everyone by surprise which is kind of sad, but we got through that. But, you know, in general, the whole idea of fortune telling, of trying to predict the future is goes much more beyond just trying to come up with estimates or, or um, you know, any kind of resource allocation. It comes down to how we design code itself, all right? So there's so much ink has been spilled, like blood, uh, over the years on how to make code extensible, how to make it maintainable, you know, all these sorts of topics, right? Absolute freaking waste of time. Nonsense. Do not try to make your code maintainable. Do not try to make it extensible. Because by doing that, you have to engage in fortune telling. You have to try to imagine how it might be extended, how it might be used, what kind of maintenance issues are going to come up 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now. You have no idea. Chances much are your better. code won't be in use then. Oh, you'd be surprised. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we the, delete a lot of what we write. Well, and that's exactly what you want to do, right? That's the goal. You want to make whatever you're writing disposable. You are replaceable. You know, you want it so, okay, yep, guessed wrong. This needs to be easy to rip out and put something else in, in its place. That's where you get that kind of flexibility where you get, you know, a, a better coupling cohesion, all the, the, you know, wonderful buzzwords. You want to take the eye that what can I do to make this easily replaceable? Because you really can't guess uh, what's going to happen. I mean, if you had looked where we are today in, in 2019, you know, if you looked at the, the sort of early threat models and what people were talking about the Internet back around the turn of the century, early aughts, this kind of wasn't it. You know, no one really saw the rise of social media, Facebook, of these sorts of issues. I mean, we had Tom with MySpace, right? That didn't seem like a force that could, you know, disable global democracy by itself. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but things change, you know, and, and right, you know, there's a lot of, of, of science fiction and, and, you know, speculative fiction where folks think about, oh, AI is going to do us in. It's going to be the next Skynet. It's going to, you know, take over. And no, we can do that on our own. Yeah, exactly. We don't need the AI for that. So what will happen will be something we don't see coming. Um, and that's that whole black swan phenomenon. Um, if, if you've read the book, it's an interesting notion that, you know, all the big changes that have come up in history were from things that basically you couldn't see coming. Because if you did see it coming, it wouldn't be a big deal. Right. So kind of QED. It's like it's the stuff you don't see coming. I remember I was cleaning the, uh, the basement. Uh, a couple of years ago when we were moving houses and I found a bunch of old magazines from the nineties thereabouts and every cover, all the uh, opinion articles, every wars, who would win motif or open look? <laughs> <laughs> what right? are those? You know, right. Exactly. Right? And, and who's no, going like, to win? Seriously, what are those? <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So, all right. So X window system, right? You had open look, uh, from, from sun and you had a motif consortium, which, uh, MIT based. I, it's been so long. I don't remember, but you had these competing standards for GUI interfaces running on X window for Unix for Unix. Cause that's where the action was, you know, sort of at the time, you know, it's like everything else. They were really sort of the same thing, but they tried to look different and they worked different. It was like Microsoft back in the day saying, well, yeah, we're going to have paths, but we're going to make our path separators go backwards from everyone else just because. But, you know, this was this was a huge topic. Right. And then, you know, networking, you know, who's going to win the networking wars is going to be RMI or CORBA. And the audience goes, what? <laughs> Who? Yeah, the answer you is know, no. It's HTTP, HTTP, HTTP one. Right. The Web one. Right. This stuff that no one really saw beyond the desktop metaphor or the workstation metaphor at the time that was computing and clearly one of these uh, systems is going to be ascendant and take over and rule the world and no the entire stack got swept aside we're doing something completely different now you talk about desktop now and people are like what it's mobile dude it's all mobile everything's mobile who cares about you know who writes desktop apps 
There's folks that do, but not sure, a lot. internally in companies. Not like the old days. It seems like most prediction is is pick a trend that you can currently see and then and then try to extend the line off into the future. Oh yeah, like yeah. Kent Beck says, if your goal is like a 10x increase, picture a hundred times or a thousand times increase and ask what would have to be true. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, what fundamentally changes? This tangential, but that's what I find interesting about science fiction and speculative fiction in general is that sort of, okay, if this change happened, if we had this great technology, if we had warp drive, if we had transporters, if we had unrestricted gene editing, if we had AIs that were smarter than us, you know, what would it be like to live in that world? Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. Tell us about your books. So I started, uh, what, I guess two years ago now, I started writing um, some science fiction and I published the first novel, Conglomora, uh, which is just like it spelled just like it sounds as two M's. And it's about humanity screwing up the planet as, as we are wont to do in most fiction. Uh, and then heading out to the stars, but then realizing that none of those, uh, Goldilocks planets that we had hoped for, none of them worked out. They all had issues that we didn't know until we got there. Notice the theme, right? <laughs> it's just like, it's just like software design or anything else. You know, oh, it looks great on paper. And then you get there. It's like, crap, that's not going to work out. So they end up taking all their ships kind of to the, to the edge of space and just hooking them together and like, okay, that's it. This, this, this is our life now. This is all we got. And then a straggler from Earth shows up and all hell breaks loose and it gets fun from there. So then I wrote a sequel to it, wrote the second book, which expanded the story from, you know, the, the original one. And then the third one I haven't started yet took a detour to write a novel about a haunted house that's set just after the second civil war. So that was kind of fun. So this, this sounds really bad, but literally, this, I'm not exaggerating. This Saturday, I was sitting in my living room, working on my novel, listening to the album I had just finished uh, recording for uh, February. Because there's this challenge, right? There's the RPM challenge. You can see it on the web. They say, all right, you have one month to write and record an album from scratch. 35 minutes of music or 10 songs, your choice. You have to sit down and do this in one month. And the bastards chose the shortest month of the year. Uh, <laughs> at least it divides I, nicely uh yeah <laughs> and i hadn't done this for years it, i'd done it a long time ago it's like well that was kind of fun but it's it's really brutal to try to you know get that creative and get that much of something completed in a in a time boxed fashion and they do this with writing too right they've got the uh, november writing month where you've got a, a, a month to at least start a novel or try to finish it uh, or what have you you know, there's a lot to be said about the the panic of a time box. You know, you, you've got a, a hard deadline. You've got this much time. You have to now make, you know, the hard choices. You know, is this really working? Nope. Ditch it. That's why I think Scrum has become so popular. <laughs> Bring it back around again to, to development. Scrum is waterfall. You know, let's face it. It's a short waterfall, but it's still a damn waterfall. It's a two-week iteration. Now, if you're used to doing six-month, year, 18-month iterations, it's a godsend, right? It's a miracle. It's absolutely amazing. But it's really not. It's two weeks, 30 days, you know, whatever whatever is popular in this, in this day and age. Yeah, again, as, as Avni was saying earlier, the, the goal is continuous deployment, continuous integration, continuous development. You want to have, you know, some uh, sponsor or executive come in in the morning and say, I got this great idea. We need this feature. We need this thing. You should be, unless it's like something really bizarre, you should be able to roll that out in a day or two. You should be able to roll that out that afternoon. Or some piece of it. Or some piece of it. Yeah, some some early prototype of it. You know, it shouldn't be weeks. It certainly shouldn't be months. The world doesn't work at that pace anymore. Even our knowledge, our, our, our concept of a project, right? We kind of view this like a Hollywood film. You know, you get all these people together, you're going to blow a ton of money. It's going to take years and cost $30 million. And then it stiffs at the box office when it comes out, right? You know, and that's, you talk about inertia, right? That's still how most people, I think, view a project in software development. This is one big release after you've blown through all the money and then you're done. When they act you're like done. it's done like a movie, like, yeah. or, or, it's or, Sometimes it is. Sometimes your software is an ad campaign and it's up for three months and then it's down. Oh, that's, that's kind of the only kind that's done. 
<laughs> right. But otherwise, it's it's continuous. It's more like a series. You know, it's like Doctor Who. It just keeps going. You know, you change out the <laughs> different incarnations. Yeah, yeah. It ju- yeah, it just keeps going. I mean, and it's like you look at your look at your phone, right? Look at how many updates of apps do you get on your phone every damn day? I mean, this stuff is just it's just rolling out. They're and not those waiting. are way slower than web apps. Yeah, absolutely. But they're not waiting because you can't wait. You have to be on top of the latest security uh, holes that have been found on the platform, the latest attack surfaces that have been found, the latest regulations, you know, thank you, GDPR, and, and you know, whatever else is going to roll out this next week. Um, the latest changes to when daylight savings time happens. Oh, that's that's a good one. That's fine. Yeah, that, you, know, you talk about inertia. It's like there's a remarkably stupid idea that we can't seem to get over. We're still stuck with daylight savings. We're still not using the metric system. Oh, yeah. My kids complain about that. Like, what is wrong with this country, Mom? It became – it was, like, illegal for us to use the metric system as of, like, the early 70s. Um, I think – there's, like, some global map that goes around the net that's, like, the only two countries that still don't use metric are, like, Rwanda and the U.S. That's it. You know, I think even North Korea uses the metric system, for God's sakes. I mean – and, and so, yeah, you talk about inertia. That, that's a classic example, right? There's there's no real good reason not to accept investment in tooling, investment in training. It's the way we've always done it. It's what we're comfortable with. It's what we know. You well, know, those it, are powerful forces. It, the continuous deployment is it's not just about things you have to do. It's not just about avoiding disaster with security or daylight savings time. Or It's also about expressing what we've learned. And, yeah. and moving the dot and getting better and better. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And that's, you know, the, the, the biggest uh, drums that I bang on, I think, is to tell people uh, about feedback, about the importance of context, and about the importances of, of learning. Um, and they're all sort of tied into each other because, you know, one of the problems with formal development processes of any ilk, agile or plan-based, is – as soon as you start putting hard and fast rules like that in, you're ignoring context. And that's that's a really important thing. This is why, you know, quote, scaling agile doesn't work uh, at a lot of places, because you're ignoring the context. You're ignoring those ingredients that made those couple of pilot teams work great in the first place. Uh, and saying, OK, well, now we're going to put hard and fast rules. We're going to productize that. We're going to we're going to lock it down. Right? We have to lock it down. I've always hated that phrase because, no. You don't want to lock it down. You want to open it up. Well, I mean, they right. want to lock it down, but that's not actually going to help. It's only going to feel good, briefly. Proceed that way. <laughs> so I'm thinking about these projects that I've seen where these teams got really excited about continuous. And then they spent all this time and money and infrastructure on continuous and seemed to forget what it was they were doing and why for any kind of real purpose. And I see that happen all the time where we get so obsessed with process, so obsessed with, well, we need to make all these feedback loops and we need to do it, you know, this certain way and, and just losing sight of why anything matters at all anymore because we're so obsessed with that. And I'm just curious, why should continuous be the goal? So a couple thoughts there. Yes, we have an absolute tendency to want to become experts at the process instead of experts at problem solving. I was at a, a shop a couple of years back visiting, and they prided themselves on just how thoroughly and strictly they adopted XP. And it was remarkable. And it was it was a larger it was a larger place. They had ah. 150, 200 developers, I think, something, something on that order. It wasn't, it wasn't 10. You know, it was a bit larger than that. And they were so dogmatic about it, so rigid about it, that I, it's almost not an exaggeration to say they had to sit down and have a planning meeting with story cards to decide where to go to lunch. I mean, that was kind of the level they were at, right? You know, it's like, well, okay, what's, well, you know, the Indian place is, is, takes longer than the Chinese place. So that's like three points instead of one point. It, you know, they're just totally, totally out of hand. And they went out of business. You know, within two or three years after that, they went out of business for exactly that reason. They had become ossified, calcified. They were so rigid in their interpretation of what's not supposed to be rigid in the first place that they were unable to adapt. And penultimate goal is to be adaptable. Back when the the bunch of us got together and made the Agile Manifesto, 
there was a lot of discussion about what to call this nebulous concept that was floating around. And in fact, when um, um, Alistair and I think uh, Bob Martin booked the facility, it was booked under Lightweight Process Conference. Uh, was what we had called it. There was only 17 of us, but we called it a conference because, you know, tax reasons. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, we didn't know what to call it, right? Some folks want to call it lightweight to to get away from the sort of ponderous approach of, of the, you know, UML or ISO or these, these other waterfallish kind of things. You know, and I think we maybe did a disservice by settling on Agile. I think adaptable might have been a better word. I think that has somewhat better connotations because that that's excuse me, really, the, the whole nature of the game is you have to be able and, and excel at adapting to change because change is coming at us so rapidly from society, from technology, from, uh, you know, every corner, really. And if you look historically, today's pace of change, as fast as it is, is the slowest it will be in humanity. It's monotonically increasing. It just keeps getting faster. So adaptability is where it's at. That's the goal. And, you know, in a very Darwinistic sense, you know, if you don't adapt, you die. It's yeah. just that simple. But, but the thing is, okay, yes, you've got, you've got these things that you have to adapt to for survival, security, whatever else, uh, legislation. But the real goal, the actual ultimate goal is to serve the user. And that's the important part. This is what folks lose track of when they start getting uh, all bent on, okay, we're going to master this process. I don't give a fig what process you use. I want you to serve my needs as a user. Interestingly, I find it's the same thing if you're writing, if you're writing fiction or writing technical books, or if you're writing software. It's all about the reader. It's all about the user. It's not about you. <laughs> so that's that's really what you should put in, in the big headline is it's not about you. <laughs> yeah. So Janelle, you 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 are pointing out that uh, you can continuously deliver all day, but what are you delivering? Um, continuous delivery can help help you survive, but we also want to thrive, and that means serving the user. Exactly, and that's that's where you need to be able to adapt quickly. And do what they need. And, you know, you can see that there's all these great examples of, of uh, large companies who don't aren't adapting particularly well. You know, banking seems to be in a bit of a, of a trouble these days. There's some well-known, very large companies who are willy-nilly having huge data breaches, having data center outages, having, you know, all these manner of, of, of user-facing difficulties scamming their users, getting called on the carpet for it by Department of Justice. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of, of, of stuff going there. And again, it's like you have to serve the user. One of my two of my pet peeves, all right, banks and credit cards in particular. First of all, you're sitting there trying to, to balance your statement. So you get the email. Your statement's ready. Okay, dynamite. I click on the link. How many damn clicks does it take for me to get to my statement? Well, first you have to answer two security questions that anyone who went to high school with you would know. Exactly. And all my neighbors who know the name of our pet. It's like, you know, there's that cartoon saying, okay, it's your first pet, kids. Pick the name really carefully. <laughs> you know. So your your first pet is like 6C, 4 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We call him 6C for short. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the neighbors don't know the rest of his name. <laughs> yeah. And 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 then that's right, right. So you have to go through that nonsense. You have to go through at least four interstitial pop-ups advertising some bilious crap that they're trying to push on you that you don't want. Now you finally get to the interface, and is this month's statement any sort of a button anywhere up on the first page where you can see it? No, you've got to go through some programmer's hierarchy. You know, it, 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 I swear to God, half the time it's mirroring the database. You can like picture their schema from their UI because, okay, well, this is under this, is under this, is under that, and you get in, and you finally get to the bloody thing, and then you look into that, and you're looking at your other stuff, looking at your records, and, oh, you didn't touch the button long enough. For your convenience, we logged you out. It's like you were outside in the yard too too long, so we locked the house for you as a convenience. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> So I feel like there's almost a paradox here because it's vital to be adaptable. I'm, I'm hearing it's vital to be ad adaptable. Even practices that we adopt become part of being non-adaptable. They become something that we get locked into. Do we need rigid standards of adaptability? 
<laughs> no, that's an interesting concept. Rigid standards of adaptability. Um, yes, very strict. That's exactly the problem. And, and this is one of the things that kind of really galls me, too. It added to a long list. We haven't even gotten to telemarketers yet. You know, the agile methods by that name have been around for 20 years. How much have they adapted and changed? Almost none. You know, some little tweaks here and there, maybe a practice or two. But, you know, overall, they haven't changed. And this is a different world than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, we were talking about Motif and OpenLook and Corba and RMI and shrink wrap software development and desktop computers and slow net access. It was a different problem situation. It was a totally different problem surface. It was a different environment. You know, almost everything about it was different. And yet, a lot of our languages are the exact same. You know, some of them made some progress. Our methods, you know, the ones that we've been uh, set as a goal, it's like, okay, we really want to try and do this. They haven't changed. And they probably should have. So, you know, I think there's a lot of value in saying, well, I will say confidently, any practice, even the ones I advocate, that's not important. The practice is not important to the overall workflow, and I prefer the word workflow than, than process because you're actually trying to define how we work together as people and how we parcel out who does what, when we're doing it, how we're coordinating it. You know, That's what a, quote, process should really be. It's not the Play-Doh machine where you turn the crank, right? If processes get ossified... Is there is there a meta process that we need? Yes. Or is or is there is there like a culture element to this? Both. There is a meta process and it is it is cultural in nature. So what you what you have to get to and this is what I always thought agile with a little a meant. And it doesn't mean scrum. It doesn't mean safe. It doesn't mean, you know, any of these ossified kind of situations. It means being adaptable. So, okay, what do we do to be adaptable? Well, we have to be really good at seeking out and using feedback. We have to be very aware of the context that we're working in. Hey, this worked great for the last three projects. This one's different. It's not going to work the same. We have to experiment and find out what's going to work good, get the feedback from that in this context, learn from it, Notice I'm using like the same five words over and over again here, right? It's, you know, it's feedback, it's context, it's learning. That's the sort of meta process, um, if you will. And that's the kind of stuff I was trying to pitch with um, the Grows method ideas was getting away from these very strict, uh, the strict idea processes of, okay, you know, we're going to have a, a stand-up meeting for 15 minutes and it's these are the rules and here's the questions you have to ask. You know, it's a great start. Don't get me wrong. That's a great start. And if you haven't done that kind of thing previously, that can be a real boon to get you up to the next level. But it only gets you to that next level. To go beyond that, you've got to go beyond that. And you've got to start figuring out what you might do better in your particular context, in your situation, with the skills that your team has, with the problems unique to your organization, your users. You know, you've got to get up to that level of experimentation and analysis and trying it out and then trying something better and learning and stepping from there. That's what it boils down to. I think that in design, design of workflows, design of architecture, design of software, we need to stop asking first what is right and ask first, how will we change it? How do we change it is a really good answer. Um, Recognizing what's wrong is more challenging sometimes than it seems. And sometimes it's blindingly obvious. It is. And, and then you're everyone, blinded and by rug. it. And, you know, we can't, we can't possibly change that. We, we, we can't do that. And, and, you know, as soon as you say that, you're right. You know, it's a pretty kind of self-fulfilling prophecy there. It's like, we can't possibly change that. Okay, well, you know, there's no law that says that you or your company has to survive, right? That, that's, that's not a requirement. Well, <laughs> for, in most companies, yeah. It'd be nice, but, you know, there's no if you do it wrong, you won't. It's you know because it's that simple. You know Martin Fowler had a great uh, a great line some years back. He said, you know when you run into these sort of really uh, stiff opposition from the organization, he says, well you have two options: you can change your company or you can change your company. You can jump out of the pot. Yeah. Yes, like the frog. Are there things that I don't? I'm, I hesitate to use the word pro- practices, but are there? Th- Something that exercises um, that make a group more 
reflective. Yes, there are. So to make a group more reflective, you need a couple things. You need cultural changes to make that acceptable. So you have to have an environment of psychological safety. You have to have that kind of you know ability to look at stuff. You need to have opportunity. You know, one of the things that I, I pitch with the, the grows material is that there's really three things you have to schedule. You have to deliver. You've got to have you know whatever next piece of functionality, but you also need time to discover. You need to be able to experiment with the next tech stack, look at alternative design options, that kind of stuff, and you need time to refine. You have to be able to fine tune and improve the development process. So. You know, everyone's been saying for years, well, yes, you should have uh, uh, project uh, uh, retrospectives or postmortems. I always love that. It's okay. Postmortem, it's too late, (laughs) right? Patient's dead. This is not going to help you uh, for that project. But, you know, yes, it's not for free. You know, and this is this is part of the problem. You actually have to invest in it. You know, you need to invest time on the calendar to both deliver and discover and refine and if you give short uh, shift to any of those, then it's going to come back to haunt you one way or another. And, you know, maybe you don't do all three every day or every week, but there's got to be time for it or it won't happen. And so that's what ends up happening. It's OK. Well, we you know, we're so busy drowning from the rain. There's no time to go up and plug the roof. I usually say that um, Google used to have that 80 percent or 20 percent time thing where you could work on whatever you want. I think we should spend 80 percent of our time like using the system that we've built and delivering within it and the other 20% improving it. Yeah. That's, and that's a great idea. And that was something, again, we pitched that back in the, uh, in the pragmatic programmer book was that if you're working on a project, you should spend like a week with that use with the user for that area of functionality. You should spend a week with them doing their job, watching how they do it. Cause there's some, there's some well publicized failures where that didn't happen. And you know, the sort of, of hubris and arrogance on the part of the company or the developers, like, oh, we know what's better for you. We're going to build you this thing. And, you know, it turned out that it wouldn't work at all for whatever reason, you know, that the target community was uh, illiterate or didn't speak that language or they didn't use it that way. You know, travel agents was was a great example back in the day. They were used to an old character-based uh, system where they would just spit out these, you know, 20, 30-character command line uh, strings to get what they wanted and then they first gave them the point and click things. They're like, what the hell is this? I can't. So slow. Yeah. It, yeah. It slowed them down. You know, it cracks me up to this day. You go to like the, the uh, Android or, or iOS uh, keyboard and it's QWERTY. Right. It's a QWERTY layout keyboard on a piece of glass emulating the physical keyboard where they shuffled the keys around to slow it down so the keys wouldn't jam. <laughs> and yet. I mean, and yet. Dennis, you talk about inertia. I mean, God. But that's okay. That's, I mean, there's, there's a usefulness to that inertia because that keyboard exists to serve a user who is familiar with a QWERTY keyboard. The, the, the familiarity there in the wider world makes the QWERTY keyboard on the phone efficient in its situation. Yeah, maybe. I ain't buying it. <laughs> like the travel agents. If if I sat down in that old command line system, I would not be efficient. But they were efficient sure. in the situation of the travel agents who knew them. And this gets to the other really major point is one size doesn't fit all, right? You know, every application should have like the expert user mode and the newbie mode. And this this makes me really insane with especially a lot of the direction Apple's been going in lately. They have really cast off providing anything for experts in their media apps, uh, in their OS. You know, they're really targeting the introductory beginner novice level and, you know, they kind of keep dumbing it down. Apple's keynote started throwing away features that, it, you know, if you're a professional presenter, you relied on and you used. And they're just like, oh, we don't need those anymore. We'll just cork them off. Well, uh, what's the alternative? You get Microsoft Word with ribbons with thousands of buttons on them. <laughs> that no one ever uses. Yeah. Right. Well, that's that's the tension, right? You you ha- you want to be able to provide for different audiences in a reasonable way. So, you know, for like Words, uh, uh, as an example, or some something like that, where you've got a, a big menu system, you know, have a different UX. You know, have the, I just need to write a memo just give me open, close, bold, and italic, and shut the hell up about everything else. Give me a command line. 
and, and yeah, yeah, give me a command line. And then the, okay, I'm actually typesetting my thesis or my book, and I need control over, over widow and orphan breaks. I need, you know, whatever the, the, the finer aspects are. But yeah, we run into, this is a huge problem, not just with these particular applications, but with uh, process adoption and organizations. One size does not fit all. You will have experts, you will have novices, you will have everyone in between, and they have radically different needs. Almost like each team has different needs. Isn't that amazing how that works? (laughs) You've talked a lot about the journey of companies and software. Uh, Tell us about your journey. Y2K was like, that wasn't even halfway through your software career. No, it was more (laughs) than halfway. It was was whatever sounds less plausible. (laughs) That was a long time ago. We'll just just leave it with that. Yeah, so, so my journey was... I think it was kind of interesting. Yeah, I was in in grade school, I guess, maybe junior high, when I stumbled across a book at Radio Shack. You remember Radio Shack? Yeah. Um, and they had a book about these the coming microprocessor revolution and large scale integration and the the promise of the LSI chips and and all this amazing stuff. You know, I was just a kid. I read that. I was like, this is cool. This I want to I want to do this. I want to be involved in this. And we had a uh, we had a teletype at the school that was hooked up to a mainframe with an acoustic coupler, right? It's just like in, in, like in a modem. Games. Yeah, it's like it's like a modem on a on a phone handset. Okay, so I'm trying to explain this to my kids once. It's like, hey, it's a modem on a phone handset, and you put it in the cradle, and they're like, Dad, what what are you talking? Oh about? yeah, yeah. What is a phone handset? Yeah, yeah. What's a phone handset? You know, let alone what's a modem. You know, <laughs> it gets hard. But right, we still dial a phone. You know, people talk about dialing the phone. Well, I know people who talk about dialing the phone. We haven't had dials in however long. You talk about rolling down the car window. You know, when it was oh, last yeah, time we do say car that actually yeah. had a crank. You know, um, so yeah, old habits die hard. But uh, no, I, 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 got, I was I was into that into tech at an early age and uh, got a, a bachelor's degree in, in computer science. And all that sort of stuff. Worked for a couple really big giant companies. Realized I didn't want to work for big giant companies. Uh, How long did worked, that take? Uh, that's uh, only a couple of the, I, a couple of years at the big behemoths, and then I, I worked at some small companies doing uh, graphic uh, software that was used in special effects work in Hollywood. And that was actually really cool because one of the companies uh, hosted us. We were out at a SIGGRAPH. Out in uh, in California, oh, and they they the uh, some of the um, uh, vendors that we use were the big special effects houses in Hollywood. So they threw parties for the developers at you know Prince's nightclub in L.A. and you know so you got and, to be a rock star. Yeah, well, we had you know Billy Idol came and gave a private concert to 150 of us. Wow, uh, that that sort of thing. So that was an awful lot of fun. Um, I I, I kind of miss those days. And then um, started consulting and going out and seeing just how, you know, screwed up the rest of the world really is. Um, you know, this, this is kind of one of the things about programming. It's like you sit there in the kind of pristine beauty of an algorithm or some really beautiful code that you have or you just discovered some really neat um, language or framework or just this mathematical precision and beauty and calm to it. Uh, and then you walk out of your office and you've got, you know, users drinking from the bottom of the glass, uh, like that cartoon and, you know, all, all the insane management nonsense and insane politics and you know, the real world in all of its messy grandeur. So I experienced all that messy uh, grandeur for some years as, as a consultant and then started the writing thing, as I'd mentioned in the beginning, sort of by accident. You know, Dave and I wanted to write a white paper for our clients so they would screw up a little bit less and get them, you know, a little bit onto the idea of here's how, you know, you should use a version control system. You should have automated builds. You should have unit tests. You should think about problem solving this way. You should, you know, all the things that are in, in Pragmatic Programmer. It was shortly after that, two things happened. We wrote the uh, the first pickaxe. We wrote the Programming Ruby book. And that was the first English language book outside of Japan on Ruby, which uh, helped bring it to prominence. Uh, and again, we were just going to, we wanted it for ourselves. We wanted like a little reference book. It was going to be a short 50, 80 page guide to Ruby. And the first edition of that was, I think around 250, 300 pages, something like that. 
the current version, um, uh, D- Dave updated a couple times, and then uh, some other folks have updated. It's up to eight hundred. Oh my god! Now I think so. I mean, it's it's a doorstop, but it has you know it needs to be. But words are cheap now <laughs> on the internet. Words are cheap on the internet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we wrote the Ruby book. Uh, that's it was around 2000, 2001. That's when the Agile uh, Agile Manifesto. Um, Dave and I were two of the seventeen, and we got together with the other folks uh, and wrote that because, again, a lot of the stuff that we had promoted in Pragmatic Programmer was very much aligned with what Kent Beck was writing about in the uh, the first XP book, which had come out at that time. You know, with what what Alistair was doing, what the Scrum guys were doing, so we were all kind of floating around in this was same. Scrum a thing that long ago? Uh yes, absolutely. Oh, okay, it, it predated that even. Um, and that's kind of the other funny thing. It's you look at the Agile Manifesto or or anything that, that any of us wrote at the time. None of that was new. There's pictures of pair programming going back to the fifties with people oh, with right. boards. Yeah. There's kind you of a, there's a kind of a magic soup to it when you put it all together. It is. It is. But all the ingredients were there forever. I mean, unit testing. I've, have you ever seen, if you look closely, there's that famous picture of the first bug, right? The moth taped to the yeah. logbook uh, that the Grace Hopper's organization found. And if you look at what was in the logbook, they were running unit tests of the sine and cosine tables. So, And that was, I forget what year that was. That was what late 40s, early 50s. I mean, the ancient Absolute ancient history. We go on about, oh, but that, we've been doing that forever. That is an old idea. That idea has been around since the 70s. Yeah, so has everything. But, like, everyone, (laughs) including stuff like the Agile Manifesto, including stuff like Kent's XP book, everything that brings an idea to more people, that makes it accessible to more situations, that's new, too. That's a contribution. It is. It, is. it doesn't need and to be original. You don't need to copyright it. You don't need to put the personal story in front of your recipe. And anyway, exactly that. And and I feel you know I feel kind of bad in a way that you know I've been saying the same things for several decades through my career. But again, it's an ever changing, always new audience that hasn't heard it before or heard it and forgot it and needs to hear it again. And it's ready um, for it now. And is ready for it now. Right. I mean, you can say the same thing about the sort of diet and exercise industry. I mean, it's a simple message. Eat less, burn more. I mean, that, that's all it comes down to. And telling people what practices to follow to do that, what process to follow to do that, what recipes, what ingredients, that's a how many billion dollar industry? I mean, it, it's absolutely huge. And, you know, you could sum up the, the, the nutritional aspect of it in a paragraph, but it's not that easy to do, is it? Yeah, it's something else to bring the idea into the world. And everyone that we talk to, all the different companies and the different organizations, they're not all in the same place. And no. they don't exist in the same situation. Their users aren't the same. Their corporate governance isn't the same. It's okay to be behind what people tell you well, is state of the art if you're moving. Yeah, it's, it's not even behind. It's you are where you are. And that may be exactly where you need to be. Maybe you need to be ahead. Maybe you need to drop back a little. Maybe One of the th- in your industry, it, you need to go slower. Absolutely. One of the things that we did with the, the growth stuff was capitalizing on this idea or exploiting this idea that one size doesn't fit all. The practices are sorted by skill level. So there's novice level practices, and then it moves up to advanced beginner, uh, competent proficient, because yeah, you've got different needs at different skill levels as an individual, as an organization, as a team. You have to treat things differently. You have to handle things differently. Uh, take a simple example, maybe a, a version control, maybe the, you know, novice level uh, version control using Git. You shouldn't use branches. You'll get yourself into trouble on it. You know, maybe you should, you should concentrate on this, concentrate on that, right? You've got different, different requirements at different levels. And as an industry, I think we tend to ignore that a lot because, you know, the thought leaders I like berate people. Yeah. It's like, Oh, you should be doing this advanced practice that you, you need are to unprofessional. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's kind of funny because, you know, not, not everyone gets hung up on those things. It's like, okay, we have to have this, you know, big, massive, giant Java stack and, and this huge data center. And the kid down the street just wrote something in PHP in an afternoon. That'll kick your ass, you know? I mean, that's that's the world. That's how it goes. Yeah, there's a lot of levels of good enough. And wherever you are, you can move forward and you don't have to feel bad 
for not being where somebody else is. Absolutely. The only thing you should feel bad about is if your users need something and you can't give it to them, then that's something you need to look at. So, okay, well, we, we have to address that. We may not also be able to- feel bad about it if you're not learning. Yes. If you think yep. you know how it works, that's the worst. Yeah. You've already lost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What did we say earlier? Yeah. If you want an answer more than you want to learn and get closer to the right answer, then you'll dig yourself in a hole. Well, yeah, as you say, if you want an answer, you'll get one. It just may not be the right one. And even if it is, it won't stay the right one. Well, that, that's and that's the important thing that, you know, I think being in this industry for this long, uh, this, this many decades and seeing that, nothing lasts forever. You know, you look at some some great tech, some great tech stacks, some environment, some uh, legal problem, whatever. It's all temporary. It Cordy a- will be here forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It won't. But, okay, so interesting. I'll make you a bet right now, all right? Cordy will not be replaced with a, a Dvorak layout or anything else. It will be replaced with something that's not a keyboard it's at all. Voice. Yeah, voice, yeah. voice, or you stick that, uh, you know, jack in your temple or whatever it <laughs> is. Breathe on the yeah. phone. <sighs> yeah, you know, it just it just <laughs> reads your thoughts from your eyeballs. Or you just ask, just ask the NSA. They know what you're thinking anyway, so they'll just take care of it for you. Um, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, you know, it's not going to be who wins, QWERTY or Dvorak or, or, right. or whatever else. Or yeah. it's – no, the whole it's thing goes – It's not going to be an becomes, or. These are not, not the only options. It'll be something completely different. Speaking so. of something completely different, I think it's time for reflections. So I at the end is. of the show, we like to do reflections where each of the panelists goes back to something earlier in the show that they thought was really interesting or brings out a point or a link that we didn't quite get to. Um, and then we usually let the guests go last. Janelle, you're super quiet. Do you have a reflection? Yeah, I do. I've been sitting here a little bit annoyed, honestly, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking all of these things really have trade-offs and are not really that clear cut. And so if, if you take just for example, this idea of you should feel bad if you can't give the customer what they want, like they want something and you should feel bad about that. And I see that as another anti-pattern that companies get into where they turn themselves into a consulting company that is masking as a product company and try and do anything and everything and then run themselves out of business because they're trying to do everything the customer wants, right? And I think it's just as important to be able to narrow down and choose a focus and identify what is the problem we're solving as part of that. And it's really easy for continuous to be the goal and for learning to be the goal. And then we end up in this whole new set of anti-patterns that are doing lots and lots of learning, but not learning the right things, not reaching the breakthrough insights that we need to build a successful business. Because again, it becomes kind of an obsession around the mechanics of the process, the mechanics of continuous, as opposed to figuring out the balancing act of how do I build a successful business? How do I make decisions when I've got these really hard challenges and constraints with, okay, I can't predict the future. If I just accept that, how do I make decisions about how many people I should hire for my team? You know, you've got some aspects of things, some aspects of decisions that are hard to make, which is why there's a push for predictions, but we need to have alternative ways and methods for making those decisions. And I, I think we need to shift from a place of bitching about the constraints of the world to figuring out strategies for solving these problems, figuring out templates for alternatives, setting up alternative markets and economic systems that can support alternative ways of working. And we're in a place now where these constraints are holding us back. And I think we're also in an era that it's going to take some collaboration around leadership and the lessons that we've learned over the last few decades to move beyond where we are right now, like changing faster, agile is not enough anymore. Yeah. And speaking of building a better business, I mean, that's a lot harder to talk about. We can't sit here on a podcast and blather about how you can make your business better because talk about context. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So I just wanted to, to, just throw a few thoughts in there. It's probably out of turn, but, but um, also thank you for saying that you were annoyed. That was, that was, yeah, cool. absolutely. So two things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. 
you know, any kind of advice that, that you give uh, any corporation or any individual, they can take to the extreme and do bad things with it. They can fetishize the process. They could, they can, you know, just go the wrong way. There was a, a hilarious example of that in the uh, pragmatic programmer book. We said, it's a good thing to use metadata uh, outside of your application. So if you have to change business logic or, you know, adapt to something, you don't have to recompile and reship the software uh, in the tech of the time. You can just go change some metadata. Okay, in, in general, that's a, a vaguely good design ploy. It's a useful thing to do. Until I came across the company where they took it to heart and made themselves 44,000 configuration variables for their application. They had 44,000 config variables because they wanted everything to be in metadata. The punchline is they had 17 customers. <laughs> but they didn't repeat themselves. Uh, they didn't repeat themselves. So, yeah, I, I absolutely hear you. I mean, you can give the best advice in the world, and it is absolutely possible to run with it in exactly the wrong direction and screw yourself up. And the other thing I, I just wanted to add in there was uh, you talk about trade-offs. That is a huge topic that I wish got more airplay because engineering is about trade-offs. You know, you hear people argue about this is the best language or the best framework. That's nonsense, right? Best for who? Best when? Best in what? Best practices. I hate that term. Best for who? Under what circumstances? Right? There's no best. There's no good. There's no better. There's here's the trade-offs. Here's the consequences. That's what it comes down to. But we tend not to talk about that things. It's the things that way. You know, we tend to talk about this is the best framework for the web, or this is the best language for this, or this is just the best language. Screw the rest of y'all. You know, sadly, that's a very popular sentiment. And you know, it doesn't work that way, right? Yeah, because we like to talk in absolutes, and we think that we can either know something or not know it. But it's not like that. Building off something Janelle said, you know, we can't predict the future. We can't know everything about the future. We can't give an accurate estimate of a number. But we can know something. We can know propensities to some degree. We can estimate in a range, and then we can choose whether to spend time researching to narrow that range. Absolutely. So, yeah, these things are not binaries. And every piece of advice is in response to a problem situation. As soon as you use it, your situation changes. And that's probably not the advice you need anymore. Exactly right. And so, you know, to me, it really comes down to for these things that we don't know or we don't know enough of, you have to experiment. You have to try it. You know, is this the best framework to use? Well, I don't know. Let's try it. Let's try a little half day prototype and see how it goes. It's it's uh, 130, 120 here in, on the East Coast, so probably eight new JavaScript frameworks just came out this morning. Yeah, that seems about right. Which one's best? Which one's good? What should I use? I have no idea. I can't tell, but I can try stuff. Let me, let's try it out. Let's experiment. Let's see. In our context, with our people, with our skills, let's try this to see if this works for us. I think the thing that, that has stuck out to me is just the importance of uh, slack time in any team or organization. Um, you know, we were talking about the importance of having time to try stuff like Andy was just talking about lowercase s, right? Yes. Yes. Not the tool time to reflect time to try stuff, time to talk about, about what, what worked and what didn't. But yeah, like I I think that 20% time sometimes gets chalked up as like, this is what it takes to keep programmers happy. And what I've heard in this episode is more that this is what's essential to keep a, a group adaptable. I like that. I like that. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, good, a good summary. Andy, you had some reflections on our reflections, but do you have anything of your own that you wanted to touch on? <laughs> uh, well, just, just to sort of, I, I think we've sort of recapped all the, the high points, but uh, yeah, you know, experimentation, learning, context, feedback, rinse and repeat. Those, those are the keys. You actually have to schedule time for that. That's something I really can't hammer enough. If you say, oh, we'll do that when we have time. Huh. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's like exercising. You know, I'll go to the gym when I have time or I'll go for a run when I have time. Or not kids. We're not ready yet. Yeah, you're never exactly. ready. Exactly. Exactly. You, you know, and, and that's the other half of it. You know, it's like, oh, I'm not ready for that yet. Well, you never are. You just have to jump in. You know, that's how you get ready for it is you jump in and you try it. That's a very important point. 
So yeah, all those things. Uh, let me give you a, a handful of URLs of where to where to find me out on the the, the wild web. Great. I am uh, publisher in chief at the Pragmatic Bookshelf, uh, where we have I don't know how many hundreds of titles in print now. Everything from you know agile to languages, Elixir, Phoenix, Ruby, Rails, uh, Rust, Elm, you name it. We got all the good stuff at pragprog.com. My homepage is toolshed.com, and you can find links there to my novels, uh, the Conglomore series, the upcoming one that doesn't have a name yet. And when I finish the album that I'm currently mixing, I'll put a link for it there as well. The material for um, the practices that aren't really practices, but you really need to do so you don't fail and how to grow and succeed is all at growsmethod.com. And there's a, a mailing list there, which is currently sending about one article a month. <laughs> it's very low volume. Uh, but we have a ton of uh, practices up on that website. Where you can click through and it tries to describe here's how you do a thing. Here's how you know if you're doing it well. Here's the context in which this might work. Here's the warning signs to watch out for if you go too far. You know, as, as uh, Janelle was saying earlier, it's like, well, how do you how do you stop people from misapplying this? Well, show them some of the warning signs. You know, you're doing this wrong if you know here are the symptoms. So we try to do some of that there as well to try to uh, try to help adoption. Sweet, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Greater Than Code. I mean, the Pragmatic Podcast. I mean, Greater Than Code. Greater than Pragmatic Code Cast Pod. Yeah, that. Thank you all so much for having me.